Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and I'm excited to be joined today by former Kansas City Fed President Esther George. She led the KC Fed from 2011 to January 2023 and has long been a prominent and influential voice in monetary policy, financial stability, and bank regulation, having spent just over 40 years at the central bank. She's currently a board member of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and a member of the Board of Trustees of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. Thank you so much for joining FedSpeak. Thank you, Pedro. Good to see you. So let's start with this morning's CPI report. The market had a pretty ebullient reaction. It's kind of amazing when a report is a shocker because of a tenth of a percentage point in either direction, but here we are. What did you make of the numbers and how confident are you in the disinflation trend that we've seen so far this year? Well, there's no question this was a positive number, and that is welcome progress when you think about where we've come with the highest inflation that we have experienced in this country since I uh, started at the Fed, to be honest. So good news for sure. I want to just hold a bit of my uh, cheering, though, for this report, because I'm reminded that the Fed has not accomplished its task of getting back to 2%. And so welcome news. We should continue to watch how inflation unfolds in the economy. But I think to be reminded, there is still room to go uh, for the Fed to achieve its objective. So do you think the central bank is done raising interest rates? Because the market this morning, at least, certainly seems to feel that way. And generally speaking, when you hear the tone of Fed officials' speeches recently, it seems like the bar has been rising for additional rate hikes. Well, I think that's true, Pedro, and I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, I I do expect that they have hit a peak in terms of the interest rate. And I've supported the idea that pausing is a good idea at this stage because this has been a very aggressive rate hike. And I am among those that think the policy lags are real and that we have not yet seen them fully go through the economy, even though clearly they've hit our interest rate sensitive sectors uh, quickly. Also keeping in mind, while the Fed came out too early talking about transitory inflation, there's no question that the pandemic brought about a supply shock to the economy that we'd not seen in a long time. And so that too is working its way through. And so the combination of things, the lags, the imbalances getting sorted out, I think are sure to have an effect here that allows the Fed time to do that. And I think there are real signs in the economy that these interest rates are continuing to have a bite in terms of growth and in terms of credit conditions. Why do you think growth remains so resilient in the job market as well in the face of such aggressive hikes? Well, I think, first of all, you only have to look back to trillions of dollars that came into the economy from fiscal authorities. So setting aside monetary policy, which we'd gotten quite used to, you know, coming to the rescue with zero interest rates and QE and forward guidance, that was all in place. But I think what was new this time is this was a tremendous flow of money from the government's balance sheet to households and businesses. And that had a big impact. And you saw that also at a time 
when labor supply was tight. So people's wages were rising. So I think the combination of a, a job market in the position it was in, a lot of money had flowed out from the federal government, allowed not only the consumer to be resilient, but I think the, the performance of the economy overall has been on a bit of a sugar high from that. So you said you think the Fed has reached its peak rate, but Chair Powell is still saying he's not quite completely confident that they've reached a sufficiently restrictive stance. Is that a way of just leaving the door open to another hike without committing to one? Well, again, I I think the FOMC has to be quite clear that it is not mission accomplished until they have 2% and not just one data point of 2% but sustained in a way that they are confident. And so I think in today's world, it's really hard to say with any degree of confidence, I'm done, I won't do any more until you get closer to that. Now, all kinds of speculation about when rate cuts will begin and obviously as the economy cools, that will be one of the most challenging issues I predict for this committee is really thinking about how they move this last mile, how, how much they buy into inflation is getting back to our target. They obviously, as inflation falls, that policy rate gets more restrictive if they don't move it. So there's, there's not an easier path, I think, for them between now and the time they feel more confident about that 2% objective. So what do you think higher for longer is likely to mean in practice? And if they do end up cutting interest rates in order to keep real rates at the same level while lowering nominal rates in line with inflation, is that a hard thing to message to the public and to markets? It's very hard to message. And it's such a great question, Pedro, because higher for longer, by its very name, is a relative kind of positioning for policy. And so you might say higher for longer relative to zero interest rates that the economy experienced for so long, you know, relatively low inflation. But I think for me, the point is really, they will have to calibrate, and I suspect recalibrate that policy rate as they watch the economy cooling. This has been the whole discussion behind soft landing, right? Is which you will get a general, gentle glide path to, you know, a good place that tells you to do that. I've not been one that really embraced soft landings, not because I don't want them, not because I don't think it would be a terrific outcome for the economy. But that is just very difficult to do when you have a blunt instrument like a short-term interest rate and you've got a big balance sheet you're committed to bringing down quickly. Those are a lot of moving parts in a, in a very generalized sense to be able to fine tune for something like a soft landing. So I think there could be more challenges to come as they try to see where the economy is relative to that interest rate. Is it too soon to begin talking about the timing of an eventual rate cut or do you have a sense of when they might begin pondering one? Well, I suspect as you see in the markets today, there will be a lot of pressure to talk about rate cuts. We will get a chance to see at the December meeting, the dot plot and see how individual members of that committee might be thinking about the long run path. I think what this committee is gonna be very challenged to do is not to wanna derail the economy, not to do damage to it, and yet not to have inflation hang around too long over target 
and unseat what they've been very proud of, and that is anchored long-term inflation expectations. So that will be a balancing act that I think both will require thinking about when can we ease off policy and yet not take our foot completely off the brake here when we think about getting back to our target. How much does the fact that it's an election year complicate that calculus? Well, I don't think it will complicate it for the committee, but obviously there will be a lot of noise around that, as there always is. And it is a challenging time always for the Federal Reserve in a tightening cycle. No one really comes after you when you're cutting rates, but when you're raising them, when policy is restrictive, that can draw a lot more commentary and uh, and consideration, particularly in an election year. So I think the committee will keep its head down on that issue, but um, a lot of noise around it for sure. So you started your career at the Fed as a bank examiner during a, a tough period with lots of bank failures. I'm wondering if I could get your take on the March banking turmoil and how things have proceeded since. Are you surprised by how benign credit conditions have remained despite that original concern? And do you think that crisis is over or simply dormant, given that it was high treasury yields that got those banks in trouble in the first place? So Pedro, one of my takeaways from the experience of the 80s and 2008 and 9 is a reminder of the lags of policy and how they directly affect our banking system. The last tightening cycle, going back to 2005, we didn't see much going on for a couple of years until that caught up and really hit the economy hard. And so it's one of the reasons I've tolerated this idea that lags could be still working their way through. But when you look at the banking sector in particular, the fact that rates move so aggressively was always one of my concerns about the side effects of this policy. Not that you didn't need to get rates up because of high inflation, but there is always an impact to that. And one of the first impacts you see is the banking system came through this pandemic and was the recipient of a lot of deposits. And you have to deploy those deposits. And if you took the Fed at its word with its forward guidance that rates might stay low for a while, you might've been inclined to go out on the, on the yield curve in order to get some return on that money. And when rates began to rise rapidly, of course, your portfolio is underwater. And they're underwater yet today, which is why I'm not terribly sanguine about credit conditions. I think banks are only one shock away from having some problems, or we are beginning to see some of the early signs, I think, of credit turning, both their tightening of their own credit policies, but also some delinquencies. And if you think about the real estate sector in particular, a lot of those credits are gonna be coming up for renewal. So again, there will be some borrowers. It's hard to know whether this is a, you know, a macro event for the banking system. We just saw Governor Barr and his report to Congress on supervision and regulation, which was again saying resilient and sound banking system. But that is usually true until it's not. So I think this, again, the vulnerabilities in our banking system always are important to watch. We saw last March, some of the early effects of that, but it doesn't mean that we don't have to keep thinking about that for the banking system going forward. 
The Fed, of course, had to intervene in that particular instance by creating the bank term funding program. Do you expect them to renew that program when it expires in March of next year? Yeah, that would be a very difficult decision because it, again, will require thinking about, are we through this period? Is there no reason to worry about contagion? And that will be coming, I predict, at a time when credit conditions could be souring a bit, when you could begin to see as customers renew or come back to the table for uh, refinancing, there could be some issues there. So I think there will be a lot of pressure to try to provide uh, a support like that. You know, whether that can expire as the agencies did when they looked at things like the leverage ratio, I think they'll also have to really be considering that too. So hard to know where that will play out. But I think for small banks in particular, this has been a pretty important facility for them as deposits went rushing toward, frankly, some of our too big to fail banks. I wanted to ask you about the spike in long-term yields, or I should say the volatility in long-term yields, because they've actually retraced a lot of that, that recent gain. What do you think are, were the drivers of the jump in the 10-year note yield to 5%? And there was a lot of talk of that, that spike doing the Fed's job for it. Does the loosening of financial conditions that's happened since the decline in yields change that picture in any way? So here's an example where, and I think Chair Powell mentioned this in his press conference, the persistence, a move like that would really be the telling factor in in what it meant for monetary policy. And I think we've seen an example of that prove not to be persistent yet. Uh, But when I look at, at the myriad of factors that I think everyone is wrestling with, Is it term premium? Is it an outlook for the economy that is influencing that? Does it have something to do with our fiscal situation um, and demand for treasuries that could be driving that? All of those, I think, are fair game right now. Pinpointing any one of those, I think, is an exercise in uh, dancing on the head of a pen right now. But all of that bears watching uh, as the committee tries to look ahead because markets are doing the same thing. So as an FOMC member, you you were considered a hawk at times, in part for your reluctance and skepticism about uh, the vast balance sheet expansion that the Fed undertook. What do you make of the process of reversal, the shrinking of the balance sheet, and how long do you think QT can go on without disrupting markets in any significant way? So I will just say, I think as an instrument of policy, there is a lot more to learn about quantitative easing and quantitative tightening. Um, Having said that, though, I am also mindful that we don't have many experiences with this policy instrument. So you think back to how it was used in the great financial crisis and how slowly and gingerly the balance sheet uh, was was uh, slowed down, that runoff, and eventually stopped at a, at a pretty high level because the committee shifted to having a different kind of reserve regime for setting its policy. When you contrast it with where we are today, nearly double the rate of runoff, obviously double the size of the balance sheet in doing that. So it's a pretty aggressive shrinking of that balance sheet and one that I supported 
of course. I'd love to see the central bank get back to its smallest footprint in our markets. So when you see this very rapid runoff, so far, so good. You've seen, I don't know the exact number, about a trillion dollars of shrinkage in that balance sheet. It looks like there are still plentiful reserves in the system. The overnight reverse repo facility is also beginning to come down. And so there is room, it would look like, to continue that. But I'm also mindful, we were a buyer of treasuries at a time when we're looking around the world to say the treasury is issuing a lot of debt, the interest expense on that debt is creating an even more unsustainable path for fiscal, and, and the Fed is now backing away. So I think this bears watching, and I look at this carefully in a tightening cycle to say it's not just short-term interest rates. We are pulling back on these long-term rates, which were so key to the Fed's monetary policy thinking. And again, this is an, a bit of an experiment in terms of this kind of rapid runoff. So I think, I think uh, a lot to be observing here, and I hope a lot for economists to be researching in the years ahead. Oh, as I mentioned in my intro, you're now a board member at the Center for a Responsible Federal Budget. Whose, whose name kind of tells you about the mission. Now, we had the last rating agency, Moody's, that still has a U.S. as a AAA rate credit, downgrade its outlook for that rating to negative late Friday. How worrisome is the U.S. fiscal picture in your view, and, and how significant is the Moody's downgrade? So it's very concerning to me. And I say that in the context of knowing that the, that the dollar, that the treasuries that the world seeks are still a safe haven. So I understand that given that we're the US, we've given ourselves a lot of runway for a long time of knowing that we are on an unsustainable path. What I don't think we can ignore anymore, and uh, this organization you mentioned, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, I think has been pointing this out in such analytical and clear ways which is to show it's not just will something break tomorrow. It is what we are shoving into the future onto generations that will make it exponentially more difficult, if not impossible, to address. And so these are very important issues that rating agencies are pinging uh, their ratings right now, I think is actually a worthwhile thing to get the attention of policymakers to be reminded that, yes, we're the United States, we're the world's reserve currency, but that isn't a guaranteed position. That is a position that's hard-earned around good policies and prudent fiscal discipline. And I think it will just be critical that we get refocused on that issue in the coming months. So reserve status is a privilege, not a God-given right. Um, Absolutely. So... As we speak, we could be a few days away from a government shutdown. And Moody's, of course, mentioned political polarization in its rationale for the, the ratings outlook cut. How much does government dysfunction affect your concern about the ability for us to get our, our house in order? It's very important. Good governance is essential to any business I know. Um, and it's certainly true for public 
authorities to think about good governance. These are hard issues. There is no question. This is not as straightforward as saying if we just cut spending, we can get back there because it also is likely going to require looking at the revenue side as well. And each of those components are going to hit somebody's preferred program, preferred view of how that will happen. So there's no question it is so um, challenging right now as the stakes get higher. I think what's important, though, and you've seen some members of Congress sign on to this idea of a bipartisan commission. This is one of those times where I think it's going to be really important that everyone understands that there's a sense of shared sacrifice, that this will be something that we have to do collectively for the greater good. The government shut down really unfortunate, I think, in that sense, because it doesn't accomplish anything. It provides a platform to talk about what you don't like, but it doesn't really move us down the path of saying, here's what we can do. And that's why I'm hopeful that this bipartisan commission idea can really take hold and help us think through some of these very difficult issues for the country. One last question before I let you go. So you, you left the Fed in early 23. So that's uh, about 10 months ago. What have you been up to since? Well, it's been uh, a bit of an adjustment, but I've had a great time exploring a variety of things. And you mentioned in the intro some of the organizations I've been affiliated with. I've also uh, am part of the group that will be planning for hosting the 2026 World Cup here in Kansas City. We are one of the host cities, and that is a very exciting opportunity on the global stage to represent the heartland of the country uh, in bringing uh, the games to the Midwest. I've also have three little grandchildren, Pedro, and uh, post-retirement from the Fed has allowed me to spend more time with them, which has been really terrific. That's really great. Well, I'm going to, I'll be calling you for some tickets. So I'm just kidding, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you can at least help me figure out how to get some tickets. I think, <laughs> I think Philadelphia is the closest location for games for, for my uh, geographical stance, but I'm very excited. Well, we'd love to have you here in Kansas city. So stay that, in touch. That sounds lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Once again, that was Esther George, former president of the Kansas city fed.